So tonight's reading is taken from 1 John, chapter 4, reading from verses 7 to 21, and can be found on page 1,227 of the Bibles, which you can get from the back of church. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Thanks be to God for his word. Thanks, Matt. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, thank you for the sense of your presence here amongst us. Thank you for the amazing truth that because of Jesus we can draw near to you. Because of his life and death and resurrection and ascension, we can come freely into your presence and we can meet with you, the living God, would you send your Holy Spirit again into our hearts and minds, into our souls, into our bodies, into our emotions, that we might connect with you, that you might bring healing to us, that you might inspire us, that you might do something tonight that enables the image of Jesus to be formed more fully in each of us than when we first walked into this building. Father, please come and speak to us tonight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, as Libby mentioned, over the past few weeks at our seven o'clock service, we've been looking at different subjects, different topics that touch each of us as human beings. We've looked at subjects such as wisdom and ambition, resilience, success, and identity. And tonight, we look perhaps at one of the fundamentals. Some people would say the most fundamental of things as to what it means to be a human being. The power of belonging. It's something that is basic to every single one of us as human beings. Brené Brown is a research professor at the University of Houston in Texas. And she sprung to fame recently over the last five or six years with a series of TED Talks. And she sums our need for belonging in this particular way. A deep sense of love and belonging is an irreducible need of all people. We are biologically, cognitively, physically and spiritually wired to love, to be loved and to belong. And when those needs aren't met, we don't function as we were meant to. We break, we fall apart, we numb, we ache, we hurt others, we get sick. And that is a reality. Healthy human social relationships have been proved to decrease the mortality rate by 50%. It's the same as stopping smoking. Having healthy relationships in your life is as good for your body as giving up smoking. So the reality is that as human beings, you and I were made to connect with other people. We were made to relate to each other. We were made to belong to one another. We were built physically, physiologically, socially, emotionally to connect with other people. It's part of who we are as human beings. And yet the irony is that we live in a society at a time when perhaps we are the most connected than we've ever been through social media, through the internet, through our mobile phones, through iPads and whatever else it might be that you have, other tablets are available. Loneliness has increased dramatically in that same period. So in a society, in a culture, where we've never been more connected, increasing numbers of people have never felt more alone. It's a paradox of our society and of our culture. In a recent survey, one in five millennials, for example, felt that no one loved them at all. Now, my generation just shrugs and says, get over yourself. You're a millennial. We've all felt like that. But actually, this generation of the millennials feels it in a way that my generation and intervening generations have not felt. Millennials feel more alone, partly because they are more connected than any previous generation. But the reality is that as they have more friends on Facebook, they have fewer friends in real life. As they connect more with people on Instagram or Snapchat, the reality is that they are losing the ability to relate to real-life people in front of them. They don't always help themselves. FOMO, or the fear of missing out, 
can lead millennials in particular to have a sort of slightly schizophrenic relationship with relationships. I remember hearing somebody who works for a church that I used to work for in Birmingham, St. John's Harborn, and her job is to be the young adults pastor. And at that particular time, there was a, a woman in the church who, who came to see her. The woman was about 26, 27. Uh, she'd moved to Birmingham about a year before. And she came to see this particular person whose brief was to look after young adults in that particular church because she said, I'm struggling to belong. The person sat down with them and said, well, what are you involved with in church? The, per the woman said, well... I go along on a Sunday and I come along to church services. And then I go to a connect group. I go every other week to a connect group at St. John's. Every other Sunday, I go to another church called Riverside and I go there on a Sunday evening every other week. And then every other week, I go to one of their connect groups as well. So I'm in a connect group at St. John's, I'm in a connect group at Riverside, I come along to St. John's Harborn, and then every other week I go to an evening service at that other church. And I'm also involved in another church called City Church in Birmingham, but I just don't feel as though I belong. And the person just looked at them and said, I'm not surprised. And she tried to point out what was happening. The fear of missing out, the fear of not being in the best church or the right church or the coolest church or the friendliest church was leading this particular 26, 27-year-old woman to struggle to make real connections. And the staff member simply said, you need to decide. You need to decide which church you are part of. Whether you want to be part of St. John's Harborn whether you want to be part of Riverside or whether you want to be part of City Church. And then she said this, with the greatest love in the world, I don't care which it is. Just belong. There was somebody who was trying to belong, perhaps too hard. Because the reality is that we still retain that sense of belonging. That desperate search, that desperate ache sometimes. The writer Maya Angelou summed it up this way. The ache for home lives in all of us. The safe place where we can go as we are and not be questioned. Isn't that a lovely definition of what it means to be at home? A safe place where we can go as we are and not be questioned. You know, when somebody is a really good friend, when actually you can just spend time with them and there isn't the pressure to say or do anything. That's when you know you're with a really good friend. It's sometimes close to being around somebody who's boring and it sometimes is mistaken for the same thing, but actually just being in the company who accepts you as you are and will not question you is perhaps the safest place. That's what it means to be at home. Right at the heart of the Christian faith, we find this ache for belonging expressed. As human beings, we believe passionately that God made us above all things for relationship. 
God made us, God intended us as human beings to live life in relationship. Relationship with him, relationship with each other, relationship with ourselves, and relationship with creation. That's the fourfold aspect to the Hebrew word shalom, the idea of peace, wholeness, that we would be one with God, one with other people, one with ourselves, and one with creation. It's part of what it means to be made in the image of God, because at the heart of God are relationships, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's what's been uh, pictured as the dance of the Trinity, in, involved in this eternal cosmic Kaylee if you like, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit strip the willow again and again and again with each other. That's what it means at the heart of God. We're built for and live for relationships to God and to each other. And right at the heart of our faith is the belief that, that our most basic need for relationship with God was broken by what we call sin, what we call the fall that as human beings, our most fundamental need was damaged, was broken, because the link between ourselves and God was broken by disobedience, by rebellion, by thinking that we knew better than God, by counting ourselves equal with God, by choosing deliberately to forget who God is and how he wants us to live. And often sin, at the heart of that, is a deliberate Forgetting. It's just not remembering. It's a deliberate forgetting who God is and how he wants us to live. And the irony is that as we place ourselves at the center of our life rather than God, then our relationship with God is damaged. Our relationship with other people are damaged. Our relationship with ourselves are damaged. And our relationship even with creation itself is damaged. And the consequences have been seen throughout human history. Broken relationships, mistrust, suspicion, enmity, cynicism, and ultimately conflict and even war itself. And at the heart of the Christian message has been the fact that Jesus came to restore those relationships. That Jesus came in order to restore the relationship between God and humanity. He came to restore the relationship between people and people. He came to enable people to think differently about themselves and to think differently about creation itself. Just before he died, Jesus changed the status of his followers and disciples. In John chapter 15, in what are known as the farewell discourses, some of the last words that Jesus spoke to his disciples in that upper room, he said this, you are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. So you and I, as people, if we claim to be Christians, we're not merely followers. We're not merely disciples. We're not merely believers. We're not merely adherents. We're not members of a club. But God calls us his friends. God calls us his friends. 
Because Christianity is not a religion. It's not about rules and regulations, but fundamentally it's about a relationship where you get to know God and God spends time with you. It changes perhaps the perspective on the idea of what it is to know God and be known by God. Imagine God as that really good friend with whom you can spend time and do nothing. And God doesn't sit there and go, oh, come on, I'm bored. Because he's not. He simply delights to spend time with us and delights that we might spend time with him. And this difference in the thinking about relationships has always been at the heart of the church. On the day of Pentecost, when the church came into being and the Holy Spirit came in that new, different way that we were looking at a few weeks ago, the early church grew for many reasons, but one of the key factors was the quality of the relationships that people observed in the church. And so we find this description in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And it's easy to skip through the next sentence. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. It's easy to forget the context in which those words are written. It's easy to forget the context in which the early church came into being and where day after day, after the initial 3,000 who became members of the church on that first Pentecost day, Actually, what happened was that day by day by day by day, more and more and more people become known as followers of the way. That's what they were known as in the early chapters of the Acts of the Apostles. And even though it was risky, even though it was dangerous, even though it was life-threatening, even though it meant social ostracization, even though it meant perhaps the end of their career, even though perhaps it meant being excluded from their social circle, from their religious circle, increasing numbers of people became followers of Jesus. And this is the kicker for people like me. The reason that people became followers of the way was not the quality of the preaching. The reason that people became followers of Jesus was because of the extraordinary, radical, loving relationships that people observed in this early community of people called the people who were followers of the way, people who said that Jesus was the Messiah. And it was the fact that they not just devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Not just that they devoted themselves to fellowship, to breaking of bread and to prayer, but all the believers were together. They had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. 
and they enjoyed the favor of all the people. The church, right from the beginning, was good news. The church was simply doing perhaps what Jesus had told them to do. They were being salt and light. They were being a positive influence in the city of Jerusalem. And day by day, people decide, well, I know it's risky. I know it's life-threatening. I know it's dangerous. I know it might mean the end of my career. I know it might mean dishonor for my family in a culture where honor was really important. But such was the quality of the relationships in the early church that people said, I want some of that. I want to join that group. I want to be part of that community. It carries on. In Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 35, there's a very similar description. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. And God's grace was powerfully at work in them, that all that there were no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. And very quickly, if you go through the Acts of the Apostles, you'll see that the early church in Jerusalem is described as being a church of tens of thousands. By Acts chapter 16, 17, 18, 19, the church in Jerusalem is the first megachurch. The first megachurch wasn't Saddleback in California. It wasn't Yonkey Cho's church in South Korea. It wasn't Willow Creek in Chicago. The first megachurch, a church of 20,000, was the church in Jerusalem. A few years after that first day of Pentecost. So those radical loving relationships and that invitation to people to belong to this group of people called the church was always there right at the heart. It's one of the reasons why people have higher expectations of the church and one of the reasons why it's particularly over recent years so tragic that there have been cases again and again where people have been hurt or abused by the church. Because when you read passages like that, you think, well, if that's the, that's the, the level of relationships in the church, I want some of that. And yet the reality is that you, perhaps like me, have been in churches, not this one, but you've been in churches, maybe it is this one, where you've been let down. Where be, even though your hopes and expectations have been so high, the reality is that people have let you down. People have hurt you. Maybe those in leadership have hurt you. Maybe even those in leadership have abused you. The Apostle John, who wrote those words that Matt read for us a few moments ago, the Apostle John who heard Jesus speak those final words in the upper room in John 15, his dying words were reputedly the simple phrase of little children love one another. In the, the early church sort of legends, uh, the, the stories were told about John, that they would sort of wheel him into the gatherings of the early church. And he would simply preach, well, not a sermon that we would recognize, because it only had one phrase and one sentence. He would simply repeat that phrase over 
And if you think my sermons are repetitive, this one really was repetitive. Because week by week, in his final years, as they wheeled out the early church father, John, he would simply look at this group of Christians and say, little children, love one another. 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 Because that came out of who he was. One of the most profound statements in the Bible is found both in 1 John 4 verse 8 and verse 16. God is love. It isn't a quality that God possesses. It's the essence of who God is. And one of the tests of whether someone is a Christian is simply this. Do they love? Do they love? Elsewhere in that letter, John writes of other tests, other criteria that we can use to know whether somebody is a genuine follower of Jesus Christ. So he talks about the moral test, how people live in their lives. He talks about the doctrinal test, and it was there in that passage that Matt read for us, what people believe about Jesus. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, then John says, God lives in you and you live in God. But there's not simply a moral test, how people live. There's not simply a doctrinal test, what people believe about Jesus. But, John says, the third one is perhaps the most important. It's a social test. Do people love? Do people who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ love? I heard a recent story about P's and G's. Somebody who is on the staff of another church in Edinburgh uh, spent some time with a different church, a, a much more conservative church uh, than the church where they're a part of. They're, they're actually a part of Central Church, the church that we gathered with a few weeks ago for Kingdom Come. And they were chatting, this particular person, with two other staff members from this very conservative church. And they asked them and said, what do you think about other churches in the city of Edinburgh? And these two couple of people said, well, yeah, we think different things about other churches in Edinburgh. And the person said, well, what do you think about Central? What do you think about the church that I'm part of? And they said, well, the thing is about Central, it's all about the worship for you, isn't it? So, I'm sorry, guys, but that was the, what they said. They said, it's all about the worship at Central. And they said, oh, well, okay, yeah, because this guy was a musician and he thought, well, that's fair. And he said, well, what about P's and G's? And I went, oh, yeah, P's and G's. It's all about the love of P's and G's, isn't it? And I thought, I'll take that. I'll take that. We're not a perfect church. And there are, sadly, time to time, people come into P's and G's and they struggle to belong. And they have expectations of Libby and me and Paul and the rest of the staff or the leadership or their connect group. And sometimes people leave P's and G's because they feel hurt and they feel disappointed and they feel rejected and they've struggled to belong. That is a reality because, especially during term time, it's a large church, nearly a thousand people call P's and G's home. And it's tough sometimes to belong to a church that that's the size because it's harder to belong to that size of people. But I think if we are known for one thing amongst other Christians, I'm very happy 
that P's and G's is known for being all about the love. Because I think if there could be no finer rumour about a church, if you go to P's and G's, it'll be about the love. Sadly, the two people who were making that particular judgment weren't making it in a positive way. They were using it in a negative way. One day, I hope to have a conversation with them and lead them to the part of the New Testament that says that actually the ability to love is perhaps the most important test. And that love that you and I are called to demonstrate and to live out, not just to each other within the church, but more importantly to people out with the church, it's that different radical type of love. It's not the affection that we simply feel for family. It's not the love that we have perhaps for a hobby or even a country. It's not love born out of loyalty, but it is this unconditional, undeserved, self-giving, sacrificial love that doesn't need recognition or appreciation, applause or approval, because we see it in the person of Jesus, who loved us. Did you notice that verse? We love because he first loved us that God loves us, that there is nothing that you and I can do that will persuade God to love us more. But he simply loves us because he loves us, because he loves us, because of who he is, not because of what we do or because of what we've done or because we haven't done. He simply loves us because of who he is. And so in closing, if we know that love why do we struggle to belong? I was preaching yesterday at a wedding uh, for Ali and Zoe. Ali uh, grew up in this church, went through the youth group and the children's group, and has now uh, gone to the dark side and lives in Glasgow. Um, but it struck me as they chose the reading from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21, that Paul prays one thing for the church in Ephesus. He doesn't pray for protection even though in the city of Ephesus it was dangerous to be a Christian. He doesn't pray for safety, even though Ephesus was a place full of the demonic and the occult and all sorts of strange spiritual powers. He doesn't pray for them to be withdrawn from the situation, even though there were riots that broke out when people became Christians in the city of Ephesus. But Paul prayed one thing, he said, I pray, for this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family on earth derives its name, and I pray that you, being rooted and grounded and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp one thing, how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And it has obvious references to the cross, how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And Paul prays for that church in Ephesus and says, I pray that you know how much you're loved. Because if you know that you're loved, then that sets you free. Again, in that first of John's letter, he said, perfect love drives out fear. If you know that you're loved, if you know that the worst has been told about you, 
that you are still loved, then that should set you free. Free to be the person that God has always intended you to be. Free to love as God has always intended you to love. With the risk that you may be hurt, that always happens with love. There is always, there has to be the risk of being hurt with love. Otherwise, it's not real love. So therefore, what's stopping you and I from loving as God intended us to love? It may well be that in a previous church or even in this church, you've been hurt. You've been disappointed. You've been rejected. You've had high such, such high expectations of other people and you felt let down. For that, if it happened in this church, I'm sorry and I apologize. But maybe it's other things. Maybe it's something deeper within you that perhaps this evening you want to bring before God. Some of the things that stop us loving and belonging in the way that God intended are things like shame and guilt and fear and insecurity. It's the way in which we think about ourselves, our own self-image or self-worth. Maybe it is things like cynicism or self-protection. Sometimes people will come to me on a Sunday. Sometimes they come to Libby and to Paul. And they'll say things like, I don't find this church very welcoming. And I have in the past taken several steps back and said, maybe it's not us. Maybe it's you. And sometimes, if we're honest, when it comes down to relationships... It's actually more about us than it is about other people. Yes, we can have high expectations of others, but maybe most of the work needs to be done by us as we take responsibility for who we are, how we think about ourselves, how we think about God, how we think about other people. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that knowing the worst about us, you still love us. Knowing the worst about us, you still like us. Knowing the worst about us, you still delight to call us your friends. And that in the person of Jesus, as he hung on that cross... We see your unconditional love poured out for us. As he opened his arms, had nails put through his wrists and feet, spread his arms out wide that we might be embraced by you. Father, help us this evening to come to the foot of that cross, to acknowledge all that we are and acknowledge all that we're not, to acknowledge our pain, to acknowledge our fear, to acknowledge our guilt, to acknowledge our shame, 
and whether for the first time or the hundredth time, to dare to ask you to love us, to accept us, to forgive us, that we might live lives of forgiveness, generosity, openness, and beauty, that we might show this world that you are a God who is love. In Jesus' name, amen.